Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I am here today for the second time with Erica Miner. Welcome, Erica. Thank you, Pat. It's such a pleasure to be back. Well, for those of you who've listened to our previous show, it was episode 103. Erica joined me so we could talk about well, her career as 21 years playing in the Met Opera Orchestra as a violinist. She's also a writer, an award-winning writer, a lecturer, a screenwriter, an arts journalist. Erica, so many talents, and we're going we're gonna to make use of all of them today. That's going to be so much fun. It really will. It really will. Erica has a new book out, or the second book in her Julia Kogan opera mystery series, Prelude to Murder. We're going to talk about that in the opening here. It's it's infused with operas. Four specific operas are talked about in the book, but references to opera are countless, I would say. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so tell us about this second book, because the first book, Aria for Murder, was based in the New York Metropolitan Opera House, where Julia Kogan, incidentally a violinist, was playing, and the murder mystery did get solved. But we're not in New York anymore. Well, no, Dorothy, we're not, actually. <laughs> what happened was after, well, while I was writing Aria for Murder, I actually was writing it in tandem with the screenplay of the same story because I was having trouble getting all of the plot points. You know, mystery is the most, I think, the most difficult genre to write in, and everything has to fit yeah. like a jigsaw puzzle, and mine wasn't. So I decided to write this yeah. screenplay as a novel. And it turned out I had a lot of readers who really enjoyed it. And also it was taking place at a, in an opera house where I had been for 21 years. I knew the place inside out and I knew all the people there as well. So one of my readers said, well, what about a sequel? And I was like, I hadn't thought about it. And he said, yes. <laughs> and you need to set it at Santa Fe Opera. And like the light bulb went off because I thought, that's brilliant. There's no other mm. place like Santa Fe Opera. It's absolutely unique. The setting is unique. It's history and the way it's run. And so I thought, well, what a great excuse to go out to Santa Fe and do some research and see some operas and get a feeling for the atmosphere. So that's what I did. I, I sent Julia off to Santa Fe. Now, people might not know that a number of musicians at the Met often go out to Santa Fe in the summer because the Met is off in the summertime. And right. they just can't get enough opera. So they also go to Santa Fe. So it worked with the plot that Julia was being invited to go to Santa Fe, but as the concert master. So here she yes. is, 23 years old, with just one season of the Met under her belt. And she has this huge responsibility. And for people who don't know who the concert master is, the concert master is the most important musician in the orchestra, not just the leader of the first violin section, but really the leader of the entire bunch. And if something goes wrong or if the conductor's attention gets uh, focused on the stage, the concertmaster has to take over and the whole orchestra eyes on the concertmaster when the conductor is otherwise engaged. And so it's a huge responsibility for this young, uh, still quite naive violinist who admittedly is somewhat based on myself when I first started out at the Met. <laughs> so off Julia goes to Santa Fe and, of course, has some uh, murder and mayhem and operatic chaos adventures going on. Of course she does. Of course she does. You know, I was thinking of Julia recently. I was at the symphony 
And I paid particular attention when the concert master stood up before the conductor arrives on stage. Mm-hmm. He stands up and, and we hear the oboe give that, that note. And you reference a few times in the book how Julia, as concert master, tunes the orchestra. Can you just speak to that a little bit as somebody who doesn't live in that world? I'd be curious how you would describe that process. There's actually a long history of that, just to say that the oboe is the instrument that's chosen to have the purest kind of tone that every other instrument in the orchestra can tune to. Ah. So the oboe gives the note A, and the concertmaster first allows the strings to tune to it. So it's very important. If you're going to play in tune, everybody has to be tuned to one common same pitch. And that Mm -hmm. was chosen as the A, as often it is in a tuning fork as well. So the oboe gives an A, silence everywhere else. And then the concertmaster indicates to the string sections that they can tune first. And then Mm. the oboe gives a second A, and then the winds and brass tune to that. So that way you have a whole orchestra that's individually tuned to the same note as they hear it. And then together, they're all tuned to the same note. And that makes for a homogeneous kind of pitch all during the concert, which of course, you kind of have to stop and retune sometimes. But that's how it all begins. That's the basic beginning of it all. Yeah, it was fun to have Julia's image in my head as I was watching this actual performance. Mm. (laughs) Well, we are going to talk a little bit more about Prelude to Murder, this new book set in Santa Fe. But I want to make sure everyone knows that we're going to have a full discussion afterwards of Lulu, Albenberg's opera from the early 20th. Well, I, it's confusing when it's from, right? It's, it it's, premieres in the 30s. It also premieres in the late 70s. Yes, yes. <laughs> we'll get into it's those a, details later. Let's just say it's a very important 20th century opera. Yeah, with, with a real history with the Santa Fe opera. Yes. Which makes it really fun in this book. And I will tell you, after reading this book, I I made a determination I was going to get to the Santa Fe Opera Festival very soon because it's so evocative. You begin your book giving us this real sense of place with the mountains and the mountain air and even possibly spirits of people who have lived there in the past. Well, Santa Fe has the most fascinating history. First of all, it's the second oldest city in the United States. And it's also considered to be the most haunted city in all of North America. So it has a very, very rich past. And ghosts turn out to be a, a major part of the plot in this novel as well. So I kind of combined the history of the Native Americans, the Spanish, the Mexicans, even something I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but uh, the crypto Jews. So, you know, the, Mm. the Jewish people who came out from the East Coast and settled there and became very, very successful as artists and artisans and business people. But because they were being persecuted, they had to practice their religion in secret, either that or convert to Catholicism. So this actually becomes part of the plot because Julia is Jewish and she goes on a journey of a kind of side journey away from her music to learn more about her heritage and confront it. So it's all tied in with the history of this amazing, amazing city, Santa Fe. Yeah, it it feels like it's a real melting pot of different cultures and that, I mean, opera is a melting pot of different people and backgrounds too. So those, those work together. That's a good point. 
So, Erica, you have this intimate knowledge and experience with opera and obviously an interest in the dark side of people and murder and mystery. How did you come up with the idea for what you were going to do in this particular opera house, the Santa Fe Opera House? Well, the first thing was that I went there and I was very lucky because David Holloway, who actually pretty much started the entire apprentice program, which as you may know, is one of the most famous apprentice programs in the country. And so David was with the company like for 40 years or something like that. And he still lives there. And he and I knew each other, first of all, because we were actually uh, living in the same apartment building in Manhattan. And then he started, so he's a wonderful baritone. He started singing at the Met while I was playing there. So we just knew each other very well. And so when I reached out to him and said, hey, I'm setting a book at Santa Fe Opera and I'd like to come out there and see the place and meet some people. And he's like, absolutely. So he introduced me to everyone from the general director on down. He introduced me to people like the costume director who gave me a tour of the entire costume department and other people who toured me around the entire opera house to give me a sense of, and of course I took notes and videos and all that kind of thing Mm. so that I would know what the atmosphere was, what the people were like who worked there, who were very, very different from the people at the Met. And that gave me all kinds of ideas about who could be conflicted with who, who wants to (laughs) kill off who, uh, this kind of thing. And my wicked imagination just took off with that, went into high gear. And the next thing I knew, I I had a plot and characters and atmosphere. And actually, the opera house is itself a character in this book, for sure, because it's such a unique place. Yeah, the open air nature of it comes up a lot with the the lightning, perhaps, and, and even sometimes no backdrop, as you describe it. Yeah, it's uh, one of the unique things about the opera house is that the back part of the stage opens and closes. So, like for an ins- for instance, in a in a in an opera like Madame Butterfly, they could open mm. those. It's almost like Japanese screens that they have back there. They can open that, and you see the mountains, real mountains, in the background. Right. <laughs> Where else can you do that? It just doesn't exist. It's it's so magical. It's absolutely magical. And it's just, it takes your breath away. I mean, you're sitting there and you just, you you gasp from, from the magnificence of it. So that really added a lot to what I could write about at this place. So it, it's interesting. The opening year for the Santa Fe Opera Festival was 1957, I believe. And in my travels at a used bookstore, I found this book on opera in the American West, but it was published in 1965. Mm. So it's this wonderful account right at the end of the book, of course, in 65, shortly after this festival began. It's a wonderful account of John Crosby, Mm. the guiding light founder of this Santa Fe Opera Festival. And it just heaps praise on John Crosby and what this very artistic locale has been able to do for opera, talking about Lulu production, talking about Richard Strauss and and premiering some of his works in the United States, and also talking about Stravinsky, who had a pretty close relationship with the festival in the early years, conducting Mm -hmm. works himself, in fact. Mm -hmm. Well, John Crosby, when he got the idea for this, and 
word started getting around. Of course, he was looking for financing and, and support and that kind of thing. And one person who was kind of a mover and shaker in the city of Santa Fe described John Crosby as that crazy guy who wants to start an opera company, you know. Yeah, well, that crazy guy did pretty well. <laughs> he, well, he did magnificently well. He made it happen. I don't think anybody else could have. He w- was fortunately someone who really knew opera intimately. He knew what makes opera ticks, how to run an opera house. And that's what he used. He also got the support of his parents. The, the theater is named after his parents. Mm. And it was just a journey that when you read about it, it's absolutely unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Not only did he make it happen, but he made the Santa Fe Opera a destination. Yeah. And he, you know, he brought something to the city of Santa Fe that no one else could have done. And uh, I mean, I could go on and on. I just have immense, immense respect for him. He also, of course, wanted to be a conductor. So he got to conduct, especially the Strauss operas. The Strauss, those were his really big love, the Strauss operas. So he made it all happen. And I, I infused the book with all of these facts, but I tried to do it in a way that kind of drew you in emotionally when you read about him and what he managed to do. Just amazing. Yeah, it's it's lovely. In the book, you have various characters referring to John Crosby, and he made opera a tourist attraction. And and honestly, people do go there specific. They enjoy other parts of Santa Fe, of course, but they go there specifically to see these operas because it's it's organized in a way where you can go for a reasonable amount of time and see three different operas. It's it's wonderful, and they have this balance of some of the the great classics as well as continuing this idea of premiering newer works, which is wonderful. I think that they've probably premiered more new works than any other company in the country. And some very important works, some of them not as important, but they all really push the envelope. And it it takes a lot of guts to do that. You know, you're taking yeah. a chance because you've got to get people in the seats. And when you're doing something by Hans Werner Hense that no one's ever heard before or people haven't even heard of this composer. You're taking a big chance, but he always made it work. It was just um, just phenomenal. I, I, I read a number of biographies of him, and there's no question that he worked a miracle at that place. And so not only do people go to Santa Fe to see the opera, but he attracts some of the best singers because everybody wants to sing there. And a lot of these singers, like, for instance, Richard Stilwell, who ended up at the Met and being an international opera star, got his start as an apprentice at Santa Fe. And you'll hear the list is endless of these singers who started out there and ended up having huge international careers. That's how important Santa Fe is. Yeah, I appreciate the the nurturing aspect of their mission and them living it. It's they nurture the singers and they're nurturing uh, composers and new works as well. And if, if opera is going to remain a living art form, mm. new works are important. I mean, we love the old favorites. Of course we do. But we need new works as well to keep it alive, I think. Uh, we definitely do. Um, one example that comes to mind is uh, the revolution of Steve Jobs, which premiered mm. also premiered at Santa Fe very recently. I think it was 2018 or 17. And this turned out to be a magnificent 
work. I've seen mm-hmm. it. They, they've also done it at Seattle. I've seen it here. They also did I recently it saw it in San Francisco. Yeah. And San Francisco. So this is, a, this is about contemporary as you get. I mean, it wasn't that long ago <laughs> that he died, that Steve sure. Jobs died. And when you write an opera about someone who's such a recent and so high-powered figure, and it happened to work with Mason Bates as the brilliant composer that he is and Mark Campbell, the brilliant librettist that he is. And the two of them together created a work that has universal appeal and it's been hugely successful. So their Santa Fe does it again, as they did with Lulu, as they did with Stravinsky's one and only opera, The Rake's Progress. He, they had a great relationship with him. Yeah, that that's on my um, that's on my to-do list here on Opera for Everyone. I think in a certain number of months, we'll be talking about Rake's progress here. Mm. And so part of this is a way of saying, for those of you who may be thinking Italian opera, Puccini, Verdi, Lulu is not going to be that. It's going to be a very different style of opera. And I will confess to you, Erica, I was a little worried how I would like Lulu because I'd when you hear little clips, and I'm going to just warn people, when we play clips from Lulu here, you may not go, oh, I love this music. Because I'm not sure the clips are going to do it justice because it is an immersive storytelling experience. Honestly, Lulu's not something I would put on as a CD. I want to see the whole thing Mm. while I'm hearing it. It is immensely moving and effective storytelling. It certainly is. And it's as dramatic as it gets. And in fact, one of the characters who is singing the role of not Lulu, but of Lulu's uh, lesbian lover comments on that. She comments about the fact that how difficult it was for her to learn this music because it is not melodic. It's not what they call tonal. There is no key or melody centered to this. It's all based on something called the 12-tone system of composition, which means it's extremely dissonant. And so it's hard enough for the musicians to find those pitches, but for a singer to find those pitches is just really near impossible. And so the character, Marin, who, who plays this particular role, describes what it was like for her to, to first start to learn it. And she thought it was impossible. But eventually, as you let it seep in, and as you learn more and more of what the sound is, familiarize yourself with this whole different kind of sound, you realize that it's extremely emotional. In fact, it's described as an Egon Schiele painting depicted in music. So Egon Schiele was one of these Viennese painters who, kind of like Edvard Munch, who did the screen. It's not the most aesthetically pleasing, but it it evokes, it goes right to your gut. It just evokes all these emotions. And that's what the music does when you let it, when you listen to it in a receptive way and just let it kind of sink in, if you know what I mean. Oh, I do. I Having experienced it, I, I haven't I've seen it live, but I've watched two productions of it. One very lush with a lot of backgrounds and just a lot going on on stage visually. And one very pared down. That's a, it was a German production that I watched. Mm. Very minimalistic in terms of the staging. And at first I thought like, I liked one better than the other. And then I flipped. I liked the other one better. Than it, and I just thought, you know what? It works both ways, but you need singing actors. You need people who are going to act it out and be able to sing what seems like impossible singing. 
Oh, absolutely. Which is another thing that makes the piece such a miracle because it was based originally based on two plays by the playwright uh, Franz Wedekind, centering yeah. on this character Lulu, who basically destroys everybody she meets. She's that strong and and a person and so self centered. So the plays in of themselves are already very dramatic. So to write music to that mm-hmm. takes a very special composer. And Alban Berg was that composer. He he was brilliant. He was a genius. And he was able to put the plays together in a way that hyped up this character of Lulu and made her maddeningly fascinating. Just fascinating. Oh, completely. Yeah. And and the singing she has to do from beginning to end is just so difficult technically. Mm-hmm. You know, it has a very high register. She has to sing very loud and and declamatory way, pretty much the entire opera. And so anybody who sings that role has to be really ready for it and and capable of doing that kind of drama with that kind of singing combined. It's it's quite an ordeal. It it really is. And just a note about Frank Vedekin, the the fellow who wrote the plays that Berg was so enamored of that he wanted to turn it into an opera. He's also the same playwright who wrote Spring Awakening, which became quite a popular musical. Yes, it did. And there have been films as well. Yes. Yeah. Pandora's Box. Pandora's Box, which I refer mm-hmm. to in the book as well. So it's yeah. all connected and it all came together to produce this extraordinary opera that was so controversial. And there's a whole history about how it eventually premiered at Santa Fe Opera and Berg's widow withheld the last act for years and years. You know, they could only do the first two acts and then somebody had right because he died he died before he was able to fully complete act three yeah so she just held on to it for various psychological reasons which i won't go into but are fascinating <laughs> and so it actually premiered at santa fe in 1963 just acts one and two which was already quite a coup for the opera company and when she finally died in 1978 every Opera House in the world literally stampeded for the chance to premiere the complete opera. And everybody assumed that that would go to the Met. But John Crosby's determination and his savvy convinced the publishers of the entire work to have Santa Fe give the premiere, which they did in 1979, conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas. So that must have been quite the event. I can only imagine how huge that was. I can only imagine. Though we should note, those were, we're talking about the American premieres. Yes. The premiere of Acts 1 and 2, the, the, you know, the bit that Berg himself had finished, did happen in Zurich in 1937. Yes. And shortly before the Santa Fe, you know, same year, 1979, Paris Opera did the completed opera. And it was this composer, Frederick Serha, who did the, the work to complete it. Berg had left extensive notes. The libretto was done and there were portions of the music were done, but orchestrations and and a few completion bits. And one of the things that I found, speaking of mysteries, one of the things that I found very interesting was to learn that although the publishers were saying to his widow, yes, yes, we're going to follow your orders, like secretly they had given Serha, this composer, the notes and things so he could start working on completing the third act. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? No, no. In fact, I'm happy to say that the CD we're going to take our excerpts from today, when we play from Lulu, will be from the recording made in 1979 in Paris of this completed opera 
premiere and the conductor, Pierre Boulez, has notes in the CD booklet where he essentially is defending, although I'm not sure a, a modern reader needs that, but defending why it was so important to complete this opera. And I think when we talk about the opera as a whole, going through it, it'll be clear what he's saying because it was very a balanced show beginning to end. And it has even a hinge point in a way that few stories do. So he was thrilled to know that this was going to be completed. But yay for Santa Fe for getting both of those premieres, the yeah. or- original one and the complete, complete opera in 79. Yeah, it's, it's even hard to imagine how John Crosby managed to do that. But it was, I agree, it was one of the most important pieces. Some people think it is the most important 20th century opera, which is quite a statement when you think about it. Yeah, I've heard that. Certainly the last half of the 20th century. But part of it, I think, is just these characters are amazing. When I first started studying, doing research so that I could incorporate it into Prelude to Murder, and I read that Jack the Ripper was a character in the opera, I was like... Yeah. Yes, I am there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Who does that? I mean, it's just yeah. amazing how all these characters end up impacting each other and destroying each other in the end. It's not cheerful, but it does make for great drama. Yeah, we, we're going to give credit to Frank Vedekin for that because he did a magnificent job in his plays of, of looking at these human condition issues with these characters, but it's also shot through with real historical references. And that comes through in the opera as well. And it's important to the opera. It is. And it's so brilliantly done that you're not really aware of it until afterwards. You're like, oh, wait a minute. That all happened because of that. Yeah. There's so much to think about in the piece. And also musically, you could study it. I could just study it forever and not feel like I really know it as well as I know so many of the other operas, because it's that complicated. There's even a palindrome in it. We're going to get to the palindrome, I promise you. Okay. (laughs) I promise one and all, we'll get to the palindrome. Well, back to the book, because it does, Lulu is featured in the background. It is the first opera in this season that Julia is going to have to contend with. By the way, for those people who have read the prior book, Aria for Murder, we have some of our characters who move from New York to Santa Fe for this opera season. We have Julia, of course, who we talked about, who was our main character, concert master, and her now boyfriend, the fellow who was the detective in the first novel, Larry Summers. He is, I mean, I'd like to meet this man. He seems totally adorable. (laughs) (laughs) And also we have her best friend, Katie, who also plays violin, and she's come to Santa Fe for the season as well. So it's, it's, comforting to, to see those characters. And we know a little bit about them already. But I honestly don't think you have to have read the first book if you want to just jump into the second book with Santa Fe. I think you can you can do it either way. Read both books or, or just go ahead and jump into Prelude for Murder. Yeah, I agree. They're all meant to be standalones. You can read them on their own. Prelude to Murder, I always try to make just a few, enough references to Aria for Murder so that people mm-hmm. have a sense of what had gone on, but not too much. You know, I didn't want to overload that. But I think it's important to just drop in little references here and there so that you can make a connection to, oh, this character, that's what happened before to them or to one or the other of them. So, yeah, you can definitely start right off with this one. Yeah. 
And so the other operas that are in this season, this bloody season, are besides Lulu, which has plenty of blood and murder. We also have Romeo and Juliet. Well, we all know how that ends. Uh, and along the way, there's some murder, too. There are. And we have famous Lucia de Lamamore. Yes. The mad scene, and she comes out in the bloody dress. And then speaking of blood, Zalame. There you go. With the head of John the Baptist. Yeah. I will say those other three operas have been discussed on Opera for Everyone. So you can always go back and listen to those, too, if you want more details. But I was excited when Lulu was an option because I'm thrilled to be able to talk about Lulu with an actual musician on hand and someone who knows so much about it. But before we turn our attention directly into Lulu and the plot of Lulu, I want to get a little more sense of your book. And it's filled with people who work in the opera, costume shop, wigs, building sets, the fight director, musicians, singers. Do you suppose you could read a little selection from your book and tell us what you're going to read and Give us just a flavor of what happens in Prelude for Murder. Yes. Well, asking an author to read from their book, it's like, oh, yes, please. <laughs> Let's just say this. I, since I've been away from the Met, my opportunities for performing are reading from my book. And so oh, good. <laughs> I'd be glad to. This is a scene where one detestable diva uh, has a meltdown. Mm. And so what's happening is they're rehearsing Lulu with the stage and the orchestra in the pit. You know, sometimes they start off by rehearsing the singers with piano and the, and the orchestra rehearsing alone. But in this particular mm-hmm. scene, the conductor, whose name is Stuart, he'll be mentioned, explains that the reason they're doing this is because it is such a difficult opera to play and to coordinate between pit and stage that they want to have as many combined rehearsals as possible. So this is a rehearsal of the scene where Amelia has a fatal encounter with Jack the Ripper. Oh, so this is this. I mean, there are no spoilers. There are spoilers in mystery books. There are no spoilers in opera. This is right at the end of Lulu. This is at the end of Lulu. Yes. And Amelia is our diva. She's Lulu. Amelia is the diva. Stuart is the conductor. Julia is Julia, the protagonist, the young violinist. She is the concertmaster. Her assistant concertmaster is Matt. And then we have the stage manager and the stage director. The stage director is Salman. The baritone who plays Jack the Ripper is Goran. And the rest will be explained as we go along. Okay. So if if you're ready. Yes. This is the Amelia meltdown scene from Prelude to Murder. Act three, final scene, please. Let's start right off by killing Lulu. Amidst snickers from the ranks, Stuart opened his score. Harold, it's five seconds to downbeat. Where the hell is Amelia? Julia looked up to see a petite, dark-haired woman flounce on stage, followed by a disheveled man wearing glasses and a second, equally unkempt man waving his arms. Ma. The woman complained to the bespectacled man in a high-pitched, heavily Italian-accented voice. This director, he knows nothing. Matt leaned over and whispered to Julia. The guy with the book is a stage manager, Harold. The other one is the director, Salman Kapinski. And in case you didn't know, the screaming lady is another than Emilia Tosti, Italian soprano from hell. Harold gestured helplessly. But I thought you loved working with Salman Emilia that was before I found out he knows nothing, Amelia retorted. <laughs> Stuart waved from the podium. Good morning, Amelia. Buongiorno, maestro. 
Amelia narrowed her eyes in the dim light. This direttore tells me murder must take place off the stage. Ridiculous. Let's rehearse the music and worry about that later, Stuart said. Where is Goran? Goran Resnicek, a large, imposing man with wild-looking curly locks, strode to Emilia, kissed her on both cheeks, and gave her a reassuring hug. Emilia, my darling, Goran, I cannot stomach working with this imposter. What am I to do with him? Let him direct, my sweet. If I do, Emilia said, seething, it is only under protest. Julia watched from the pit as the mini-drama took place on stage. Even by Met standards, Emilia's capricious Italian-accented diva behavior seemed over the top. Good morning, Maestro, Selman said, then addressed the singers. Before we begin, may I remind you of the great Russian teacher and director Stanislavski, who said, Emilia rolled her eyes, does he think we are beginners, she said with a disdainful pout. <laughs> Selman regarded Emilia with a cold stare. Lulu is, quote, a wild journey of love, obsession, death, bloodshed, and betrayal, unquote, written in a context of darkness. He turned to the tenor, Shandor. Shandor, resume your position on the floor. Place is everyone. Now, Emilia, that is Lulu. Emilia faced Salmon with a disparaging look. You are Garbo, Dietrich, Louise Brooks. Your formidable psychic force causes you to destroy everyone in your path. Those who fall in love with you suffer or die. You have undone Dr. Schoen, but you don't know that Goran is Jack the Ripper. Amelia remained silent. Salmon turned to Goran. The man Lulu murders is the one who murders her and still present after his death. Matt leaned over and whispered to Julia, kind of like John Crosby, right? Julia shuddered. <laughs> Marin, Salmon said, you must convey the distressed attributes of the Countess. When you sing Im Ewigkeit after Goran stabs you, it is your Liebestod, your tragic love death. Amelia whispered to Goran, she sings it too loud, always tries to upstage me. Marin frowned. I heard that, Amelia. In case you've forgotten, I'm your lesbian lover. Try to be a little kinder, would you? Salmon suppressed a groan. Let's just sing, shall we? Das ist nicht deine Schwester, Goran sang to Amelia. Sie ist in dich verliebt. That's not your sister. She clearly is in love with you. You could have fooled me, Marin muttered under her breath. What did you say? Fuming, Amelia turned to Salmon. You see, she's sabotaging me. Could we continue, please, Salmon begged. Lulu and Jack, offstage, final dialogue. Amelia's nostrils flared, but she allowed Gurren to shepherd her off into the wings. Nine, nine, no, no, came Amelia's blood-curdling cry. Lulu, my angel. Lulu, my angel. Marin rushed off stage, then returned, slowly backing up, eyes wide in horror, as Goran stalked on stage, wielding an oversized stage knife, which he plunged into her. Then he washed off the knife with wine from a bottle on a table, wiped the knife on his coat, and sang, I am just the damn luckiest of men. Salmon was ecstatic. Excellent, excellent. <sighs> Meanwhile, Amelia had returned to the stage. Hours wasted because of his terrible incompetence, she shouted. Murderer must be on stage. Salmon finally lost his patience. It's the way John Crosby conceived it, he growled. Take it up with him. But John Crosby is dead. Precisely, said Salmon. <laughs> oh, cried Amelia. Fuming, she marched toward the wings where she ran into Magda. How am I supposed to stand in these shoes for three hours? They pinch my feet, Amelia shrieked at the costume director. Where are shoes you were supposed to order from Italy? I am sorry, Emilia. They still have not arrived. I will check with wardrobe director. Emilia gritted her teeth. See that you do. 
Salmon was furious. Your attitude will make you even more enemies than you already have, Emila, he shouted. Turning on his heel, he stomped off stage. Harold, Stewart called out, tell Emilia if she shows up at the dress rehearsal less than 30 minutes before downbeat, she will be replaced. Where is her understudy? Deborah. An attractive young woman sitting a few rows back stood up. I'm here, maestro. Be ready to jump in in case Emilia does anything else stupid. Deborah's smile radiated hope and anticipation. <laughs> yes, maestro. Harold stood rooted to the stage, his expression helpless. Oh, Thank you, Erica Minor. Reading from your book, Prelude to Murder. Wow. Um, just a, a reassurance to everyone. There is a character list in the beginning yes. of, of the book. Always. There's a lot of folks there. But you get this wonderful picture of all the people involved in putting on an opera. There's Salman who's trying to do the directing like you would in any play, but then we've got the musicians and, and the, the temperament of this detestable diva, Amelia. And she, I mean, this is not the only scene where Amelia gives people a hard time, but this no. really, she, does it, she doesn't seem to mind doing it in front of a lot of people. It, it comes naturally to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although they, they do say periodically in the book, the characters, that she, even by diva standards, she's, she's quite up there in terms of being unpleasant to people. Well, this is where my experience at the Met comes in so handy, because having seen any number of temper tantrums by divas on stages, and this is kind of a compendium of the worst of all of them, um, I was <laughs> able to portray that pretty accurately. Although these days, they don't do that as much any, anymore as they used to. But back in the day, and maybe in Italy, they still do. They, they get away with it. It's interesting. Because, you know, they're divas. Yeah, well, the divas are important, but it, it's also interesting that her replacement, ready to step up if necessary, is just sitting right there. Oh, yeah. Well, the conductor is is a very smart cookie, and he knows how to kind of make sure that she knows that the diva knows that there's always someone else there to uh, replace her if necessary. So, yeah, this kind of dynamic between all of these people who work at the Met or any other opera house is something that I found so fascinating to portray. I had so much fun creating these characters because of all these different personalities, these clashing egos and jealousies and rivalries and backstabbing. It, it's endless and it makes for a great copy, believe me. Yeah, it does. It does. Well, well, I think perhaps now we should launch into our discussion of Lulu the Opera going through and we will have some references yet back to your book, Prelude to Murder. But let's listen to a little bit of the prologue to Lulu, where we are told by, believe it or not, an animal tamer. He seems like a, a, the maestro of the circus, telling us about all these animals, the most intriguing and dangerous of which is this serpent, always portrayed by Lulu. Er hat Talent, doch fehlt ihm jede Größe und hat 
was from the prologue of Alban Berg's Lulu, and I have Erica Miner here with me, who has not only played this as a violinist in the Met Opera Orchestra, but has included it in her book, Prelude to Murder, the second of the Julia Kogan Opera Mystery Series. So Lulu is presented in this prologue as an animal, as a snake. This animal tamer guy is telling us about human nature, animal nature, and pointing out that she is the most dangerous of all. Well, yeah, she's a viper. She, <laughs> she's absolutely, I mean, embodies not just the animal part of it, but the, the temptation. I mean, that's a symbol. Yeah. You know, the serpent is a symbol of temptation, going back to the Old Testament of the Bible. And so it's really, when you think about it, it's so intensely what they say in German, the or kind of character, the the original, the the root of this kind of character, she embodies all that. And that is something that is shown from the very beginning. 
that's one of the reasons I chose this opera to start the book because you get that violence right away. Yeah. Just immediately. And it sets the tone for everything that comes in the opera and in the book for that matter. That's right. Well, when we move from this prologue to act one, scene one, we're not in a circus tent or with an animal tamer anymore. We're in an artist's studio. And Lulu is posing and having her portrait painted by this male painter. And in the original conception of it, it's not always staged that way now. She is dressed as Pierrot, this, this sad clown character from Comédie dell'Arte tradition, but she's being painted and everyone is looking at her. She has the painter, of course, looking at her, and you can tell he's admiring her. And before long, her, I don't know how to describe him, the, the fellow who seems to take great interest in her, and we later learn she is his mistress, Dr. Schoen comes in to admire her and check on the work that the painter is doing. And everyone seems to be fascinated. In fact, even when Alva comes in, the, the son of Dr. Schoen, Alva notices her. He doesn't make as much a big deal of it as the other two men do. But before long, Alva is going to take Dr. Schoen away because Alva is a composer. Alva has a ballet that's being rehearsed and he wants his father to come and hear it and he will go and hear it. But this Alva character is very interesting because I have heard it described that he was the one that Berg associated himself with, possibly. I mean, after all, in the Frank Vedekin plays, Alva wasn't a composer, he was a writer, like Vedekin mm. was. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, maybe you could read too much into it, but, but maybe not. No, I don't think you could read too much into it, especially since Berg's widow felt that this character of Alva embodied her husband, and that she had very strong feelings about holding on to the last act of the opera, because she felt that that would kind of confirm the fact that her husband really was dead because his character dies in the opera. So it's very closely connected. You, you can't really separate them, I don't think. And I think that as far as the character of Lulu, she always wants to be the center of attention. And she <laughs> draws people to her like the proverbial moth to the flame. They cannot resist her. She's magnetic. She's irresistible. She has something that pulls people to her and also has that quality that makes them all, ruins their lives one way or another, or they die because she's a, just a fatal person. You know, she's one of these people that causes terrible things to happen to the people she encounters. The difference is between in the beginning, her transformational arc, she seems dispassionate when her husband dies of a heart attack right before her eyes. Not as emotional as you would expect someone in that position to be, but as the opera progresses, she becomes more and more emotional so that at the end, it's the height of emotion in every way. So I think that's part of the writer and composer's plan is to show that she progresses. And it's very important for a protagonist to have a what they call a transformational arc. And in this case, it's very heightened in the case of Lulu from beginning to end. Yeah, because in this very first scene, she's very dispassionate. She's being admired, painted, and she's just 
she's there. She's letting these men look at her. She's a woman who's managed to get a lot and is used to getting a lot because she is so beautiful and people are so attracted to her. Hot girl syndrome is, is what some might call it. Yeah. But here, but let's describe how this husband dies because it happens in this first scene. Alva has taken his father, Dr. Shun, away, leaving Lulu alone with the painter. And the painter can't help himself anymore. The painter decides, I must have you, Lulu. There's no one else here to stop me. There's no one to observe. And he's in the process of seducing her when her husband, oh, by the way, she's got all these admirers. This is the husband who comes in and the husband sees this and has a heart attack. They call for help, and in the process of waiting for help, she's telling her husband, please don't die, please don't die. He does die, and very dispassionately, she remarks, I'm all alone. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be rich. But these are, like, I can't even convey it without a little bit of emotion. Yeah. She she does it without conveying the, the sadness and excitement, or whatever the emotions might be. But it's without much emotion, and... Her lack of emotion is a little frightening to the painter and, and questions her. Don't you believe in anything? As well it should be. Right? And she just says, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know is what she says. So she's, she's an intriguing person because a lot of things do come to her because of her beauty, but also she seems very lost. I agree. She does. I absolutely agree. Uh, she doesn't know what she wants. All she knows is what she can get. She's what we might call a user. Her husband dies. She doesn't think about poor man. She thinks about poor me. I'm all alone, A, and B, oh, but I'm rich. So it's all going to be okay because she knows there's always someone to replace him. And well, that's a, one of the things that's so disturbing about her. It's, it's disturbing and it's meant to be disturbing. That's what German expressionism is all about. You know, it really grabs you by the throat and doesn't let you go with these kinds of characters. Yeah. Like Lulu. Does that make sense? It, it makes perfect sense. But I also, when I see her, I also see that dispassionate behavior of someone potentially who has endured her own trauma. That's part of my read of the character Lulu. And I think there are a lot of different interpretations of Lulu, but that's part of what I see. Maybe I'm, I'm looking at it from modern eyes and shouldn't be, but this is part of what makes this story so interesting. I agree. We're all a product of our childhood traumas, I think. Yeah. You know, it affects people as we grow into adults. Whatever might have happened to us manifests in our behavior as adults. And with her, it's to an extreme and that's why she's such a fascinating character, because she's so extreme, almost unbelievable and yet believable, because we know there are people like that out there. In fact, the diva who plays her in the opera is very much like that. The, the parallels are, are kind of interesting, I think. Yeah. Very self-centered, very much wants to be the center of attention. She does. And she is. She is that character who can be the center of attention. Before we move on to the next scene to see what she does do with herself after she says she doesn't know, let's listen to a little bit of this interlude music that happens between the first and second scene of the first act.
That was an interlude from Act One of Berg's Lulu. Uh, Erica, that was an interesting piece. That's putting it mildly for Berg, considering how much of the music in this opera is so dissonant and jarring. This is actually quite lyrical and melodic. So it just shows how much contrast there is within this piece that this same composer could write such different kinds of music in the same opera. It's quite mind-blowing, and it, it makes it even more difficult, I think, because as a musician, as a player, you have to adjust to the, the different styles. You know, if you're playing a Verdi opera, you get a, a lot of lush melodies and a lot of declamatory rhythms. It's Verdi style. But in this piece, you've got something like what we just heard, which is very lyrical and relatively easy to listen to. And then you get these other passages that are so, what we say, atonal and anti-melody and just very much based on this tone row of 12 notes that he strictly adheres to. And sometimes you just don't know what's coming next. Even as much as I played the piece, I still often found myself (laughs) not knowing what comes next because you're struggling just technically to play it as it's written. So yeah, it's a huge yeah. challenge. And uh, that is reflected in Julia's, some of her comments in the book as well. Yes. As she is struggling to impress this demanding conductor with her musical abilities, she's challenged too, as good a violinist as she is. Well, yes, she is a good violinist, but also she's very young and relatively inexperienced. So her talent, her inherent talent, mm. which is outstanding, carries her only so far. At this point, she needs to draw upon her determination to play everything as perfectly as possible, not only because the conductor is so demanding, but she's also very demanding on herself. She's a perfectionist, and she believes that everything has to be done as perfectly as possible. So each part of this piece is much more of a challenge to her and, for that matter, to everyone in the orchestra than most other pieces, even by Berg. Like, I played his Wozzeck, and that, compared to this, it's very playable. It's somehow something happened. His his other opera, Wozzeck, yeah. Yeah, so something happened between that opera and this opera that changed radically in his writing style, and that is reflected in the difficulty of passage after passage in the music of this opera, as far as the orchestra, not to mention the singers, that's a whole other level. Right. Well, as an audience member, as what I imagine becomes difficult, very difficult for singers and musicians playing their instruments, it it feels to an audience member or to me that that is indicative of the heightened emotions that these characters are experiencing. Uh, Yes, I totally agree. And that's something that honestly, you're not thinking about when you're trying to play the music. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) I've been asked this question quite a bit as far as my own emotional reactions to music. When it comes to Verdi or Mozart, then, or Puccini, God only knows, I'm always reacting emotionally while I'm playing, but their music is so much more playable than this. This music in Lulu is Mm. so fiendishly difficult to execute technically, to even hear that you can't really be thinking emotionally at all. You have to think about how can I play everything, all the notes and all the rhythms correctly and not lag behind and not 
miss anything. I mean, that's just my honest take on it from the musician's perspective. And I think people will hear that as we continue to play more excerpts along the way. I think people will hear that challenging component more so even than what we were just listening to. Well, this next scene that we're coming up on, the second scene of the first act, finds Lulu in her new home with her new husband. Die Post ist gekommen. So? An dich. Die Corticelli. Dein Bild als Tänzerin verkauft für 50.000 Mark. Wer schreibt denn das? Der Kunsthändler in Paris. Das ist das dritte Bild seit unserer Verheiratung. Ich weiß mich vor meinem Glück kaum zu retten. Da kommt noch mehr. You're listening to Opera for Everyone a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL, Wyoming's only community radio station. If you'd like to hear more conversations about opera, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. And if you subscribe, rate, and review us, you'll be helping with our mission to bring opera to everyone by helping others to find this show. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, joined today by Erica Miner, novelist, violinist, arts expert, lecturer in opera. I'm so happy to have you here, Erica. I am thrilled to be here with you, Pat. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And I'd also like to give some thanks to the people who created this wonderful CD of Albenberg's Lulu that we've been listening to. This was recorded in 1979 at that opening run of the completed opera, all three acts, in Paris with the orchestra of the Paris Opera. Instrumentalists featured on this recording are on the piano, Georges Plutemacher, and on the violin, Pierre Ducan. Singing the role of Lulu is Teresa Stratus. Dr. Schoen, also Jack the Ripper, is Franz Matsura. Alva, Dr. Schoen's son, the composer, is Kenneth Regal. Schilgoch, who we have not yet met, but will soon, is Tony Blankenheim. The Countess Geschwitz, whom we haven't met yet, but we have spoken of sung by Yvonne Minton, the painter, Robert Tier, the athlete, Rodrigo, and we have not met him yet, but will soon, is Gert Neinstedt, and a high school boy, that is sung by a woman, Hannah Schwartz. We will also be meeting this high school boy uh, soon, around the time that we meet Rodrigo, because Rodrigo carries him in on his shoulders. At any rate, thank you one and all for the beautiful music that we are listening to. And Erica, typically at this point in the show, we do what we call the opera helmet quiz, where we uh, 
we quiz one another on where we are in the plot. But seeing as how we've mostly talked about your fabulous book and haven't covered very much plot, we'll, we'll skip that. But just a, another comment I'd love to make about your book, Prelude to Murder, the second one in the Julia Kogan opera mystery series. I, I wanted to tell you that I love the backstage touches, the I'm part of an opera company, even though I've never been part of an opera company, the feeling that it gives you. You must have done so much research. I can't even imagine so much research on how wigs are made for an opera company, how costumes are built. I love that use of that verb that they're built, not sewn. How props are created, like the oozing decapitated head of John the Baptist and what it takes to make stage blood and how one of the singers even though she's performing in this difficult show, she's got a, an iPhone in her pocket and how that's typical. <laughs> or, or the fight choreography. There's a long section where you go step by step by step about how a particular fight scene from Romeo and Juliet would play out. It's amazing. I cannot imagine the research you must have done for this. It was extensive, but it was also a lot of fun. And I also was very lucky because, again, to mention David Holloway, who introduced me to all these people who told me all of these details, which of course I took, you know, copious notes about and took videos and like Missy West, who was the costume director, took me on a tour of the entire costume department, but literally piece by piece, person by person, every little detail about it, uh, she explained over, over two hours just for that. It was the same with other, with the wig people and the makeup people and prop people. They all were so wonderfully cooperative, to say the least. I think they were very excited at the prospect of a book taking place there, but mostly they just were so proud of what they were doing and justifiably proud of what they were doing. And they just were willing to spend time with me and explain all these details and show me all of these little things, like the kind of needle that goes into making a wig hair by hair, all of these details, I think, mm. make the atmosphere of the book very rich. And that's what my readers have told me, that they really, like you, they feel that they themselves are backstage witnessing all of this. And it heightens the drama when various terrible things start happening, when you're imagining <laughs> in, in that atmosphere. It just, again, because Santa Fe is so uniquely wonderful, that you can have a scene where you're standing outside looking at all of this chaparral and all these kind of bushes that are just right, literally right behind the opera house and the mountains in the background and the, the endless sky. And you're thinking anything can happen here. You can hallucinate something here. And that's, again, it's my wicked imagination yeah. taking hold. So I really enjoyed that. It was fun yeah. research. I, I imagine it was fun, but I, I have to say it, it's just like little juicy morsels that we get to pick up about the backstage experience or what goes into creating these amazing shows, not to mention all the little comments that you drop, not just about the four operas that are featured in this book as performances, but, you know, Lady Macbeth is referred to at one point. There are lots of different little references, which are not required to appreciate the book, but if you are familiar with the operas, it's really fun to get to read them. In the end, this is why I write these opera mysteries, because people, for the most part, except when you go to a Met HD, you get a little hint of what the backstage is like. But other than that, audiences mm. don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And I think from what they're telling me, the readers really enjoy learning about this and 
a lot of people are saying that they just want to get on the next plane to Santa Fe because the opera <laughs> sounds so wonderful. And, and the city and the whole atmosphere of, of the land of enchantment sounds so great that, you know, it, it's evocative. It makes you want to be there. So that was a lot of fun. It, it is a lot of fun. Yeah. Count me as one of the ones who wants to jump on a plane. I guess I have to wait for summer, but uh, <laughs> I also noticed that you had quite a nice review that uh, talks about your your work as superbly written and of operatic proportions. I, I just, you know, congratulations. Well, thank you. I was quite pleasantly surprised by that because Kirkus reviews are are notoriously uh they're hard on writers. They don't they don't praise everybody. And so getting praise from them meant a great deal, especially when they then recently told me that they were going to feature Prelude to Murder in the January issue of their magazine. I was totally blown away. I'm like, double blessing. I feel very, very, very lucky and, and very gratified that all my hard work is being recognized. So Congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. And I think it's time to, uh, to see what's going on with Lulu now. Yes, let's get back to her. She doesn't like being <laughs> neglected, Pat. No, she wants the attention on her. That is for sure. And she's she's getting it. She's in her new home with the painter, the guy who caused all the trouble by coming on to Lulu when he was alone with her. The painter, her husband walked in. He had a heart attack and died. Well, it, it turns out that the painter gets what he wants because he is now married to Lulu. And interestingly, he calls her Eve. It is interesting. She has multiple characteristics and multiple names, and the names seem to reflect what she is to other people at any given moment, so that if he's calling her Eve, she's a symbol of temptation, and she also is someone who's very, very difficult to handle. Or the prototype of a woman. Yes, or the prototype of what a man wants a woman to be. And I, I've heard this discussion <laughs> when it comes to Lulu, and there's a certain misogynistic element to it, to say the least. She's expected to be the femme fatale, the, the sultry, sexy, desirable woman, which she is. But there's much more to her than that. So it depends on which man is looking at her in which way, whether she cares for him, whether she doesn't care for him. So there are all these complex relationships between her and different men, and as it turns out, women. And the complexities of her character just seem to multiply as the opera goes on. Yeah, you see it expressed as she relates to other characters. Well, the painter in this opening scene is, is in a pretty good mood because he just keeps opening the mail and finding he's receiving more and more money for his paintings. Well, it, it turns out that that's not just random career development. There's a little bit of a puppet master behind the, the good fortune that he's having. It turns out that Dr. Shun, that same fellow who was there admiring Lulu in that first scene, well, he facilitated the marriage between Lulu and the painter so that she would be taken care of. And to ensure that she is taken care of, he's making sure that people are buying the painter's paintings. And he's doing very well, courtesy of Dr. Shun. And this is going to come up because Dr. Shun will believe he is owed something, not monetarily, but behaviorally. Well, yes, he's having a, a sexual relationship with Lulu. Continuing. Behind the husband's back, yeah. He can't resist her either. Yes. No one can resist her. No. 
And he continues to have this liaison with Lulu, but he, he wants to keep her at a certain distance by marrying her off to these other men. He's, he's really a, a very controlling man and oh, really yeah. critical to Lulu's life story. He tells her very firmly, you've made a good marriage through me to Dr. Gall. That didn't last. So you've made another good marriage to this painter, and I'm making sure that he is doing well financially. But as they're arguing a little bit, she will say and speak it in the presentation of this opera, which is unusual. The, the speaking has a certain emphasis because it's so rare in the opera. She will say, if I belong to one man in this world, it is you. It is you, Dr. Shun. Mm -hmm. And she begins to tell us, we get a little glimpse of her backstory, that you're the one who gave me food and clothing the day I tried to steal your watch. And we get a little bit more of the story coming out when Dr. Shun tells, listen, painter guy, <laughs> you need to keep your wife under control. I need to not have her in my way because he's trying to break away from Lulu, but it's, it's really hard for him. But he thinks if the painter were more manly and assertive, he could keep his wife Lulu under control. And he says, I have tried to make her respectable from the day I met her when she was 12 years old and selling flowers until 2.30 in the morning outside of cafes. And you begin to get this picture of this 12-year-old, pretty 12-year-old girl, little Lulu, out there at night with no one taking care of her. And Dr. Shun brings her into his home because we will learn later also that basically as children, she and Alva grew up together, even though Alva ultimately wants to have a romantic relationship with her and will finally do later on. But as he's chastising the painter, you need to keep your wife under control. He points out, listen, you married half a million marks courtesy of me. You need to do what I say. Well, there's this other character who shows up in this scene, Shigolsh, an older man that when the painter passes him in the home, as he's going off to his studio to work, he assumes this man is, is just a beggar and he leaves him to Lulu to deal with. And when Shun sees him, Shun thinks he's Lulu's father. He's seen him before. And that's who he assumes this, this older guy is. No surprise. He's neither of those things. Well, he does ask Lulu for money, so I guess he's a beggar in a way. But she knows him. He just kind of drops in periodically into her life. And many people think he's Lulu's father, but he's not. No, he's just actually turns out to be yet another man who desires her. She can't keep them away. He desires her and he takes money from her. He doesn't steal. He receives money from her. And so she has a fondness for him in a way because she doesn't push him to the curb or anything. He treats her with some care and concern and she responds to that. That's probably the only relationship of that kind that she has that she really cares, except maybe with the Countess Geschwitz, that she really cares for him. But the one she's in love with is Dr. Schoen, and he's the one she wants. And when she finds out that he's engaged to marry someone else, she does everything she can to sabotage the entire relationship. Yes. So that's another piece of mail that the painter opens early on is the invitation yeah. to Dr. Shun's wedding. And she is not happy. And the painter can't imagine why. What? Our family friend is getting married. That's a nice thing. Not from her point of view. Not at all. No, because she wants him for herself. And she figures as long as they have this liaison, then they're connected. But now that he wants to break it off to marry this other person, she sees that as a threat and she's willing to do anything and everything to see that it doesn't happen. 
And that's exactly what happens. And it becomes a little more complicated, too, when Shun is pressing the painter to get his wife under control, to get Lulu under control. And it becomes clear to the painter that part of the reason Shun wants this isn't just for propriety's sake. It's to get Lulu out of Shun's house, get her to stop connecting with Dr. Shun. And it dawns on the painter that his married life has been a lie. Mm. And the next thing we know, he's gone off to his studio. And when we find him next, he's killed himself for grief of not having this woman he thought he had. Yeah. So all because of her, you know, she just foments disaster wherever she goes, whoever she touches. I mean, yes, but also this man made his own decisions. She did not actually kill him. He didn't see any other way out. On the other hand, she does directly cause the death of Dr. Shun. Well, we're going to get to that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> we're not, the, right. not in this scene. She doesn't. No, not yet. When Alva walks in, Alva is the one who helps make sure this door gets open because they, they think something terrible has happened, as indeed it has. And as Alva is trying to make sense of this scene and Shun is there and Shun's response is very self-centered saying, well, my marriage is bleeding to death in there. He doesn't believe that with Lulu unmarried, he can get married to his fiancee. We'll see. She's from a respectable family. That's what he's going for. But amidst all the commotion of something seems to be wrong behind the studio door where the painter has kept himself, Alva comes in and, and says he will break down the door to, to figure out what's going on. And he confirms the worst has happened. And Alva yells at his father. He said, better if after mother died, you had treated her better. You should have been kinder to Lulu after mother died. So interesting. Now we know that Lulu was brought into Dr. Shun's household when his wife was still there. When Alva was a child, as was Lulu, and that the mother subsequently died. And Alva thinks, well, that would have been your moment to marry Lulu if that's what's on your mind, but not to keep farming her out and yet still keep her connected to you. It, it's very complicated, this poor young woman's life. I realize there's disaster that follows in her wake, but it's complicated. But this scene ends with her saying to Shun, Lulu says, you'll marry me in the end. She's confident of that. Because she knows she's irresistible. And she's a woman who's used to getting what she wants. Yes, both are true. Well, the final scene of the first act takes place in the dressing room of a theater, a theater where Lulu is employed as a dancer. She's not married at this point, having had two husbands die, but she has a great many admirers. And one is even a prince who wants to take her off to Africa, marry her and take her off to Africa. And she seems okay with that. I, you don't really think that she is, but she seems okay with it. And Alva, our son of Dr. Shun, but in this case, more importantly, that he's a composer, says something that just makes me laugh every time I, I see it or read it. Couldn't some clever composer take her story and make an opera from it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what a thing to write in your own libretto. Berg, by the way, writes his own libretto for his operas. Here they are thinking out loud that her story is of such drama that it would make a good opera. And then he talks through what some of the scenes might be like, ending with, well, things keep going on this way. The death of the one husband, the death of the second husband, 
how can it keep going on? Interesting way to think about it. <laughs> yes, it's kind of uh, foreshadowing that the ultimate disaster will occur in the end. This is such a dramatic show. It, it, it's, it's so interesting, so rich and textured. It, it kind of makes me want to read the Vatican plays. Which is always a good idea. But in this case, especially since Vienna in Berg's time was even more than a musical city, it was a theatrical city. Going to the theater oh. was the most desirable place to be. And so Berg was really into plays and everything theatrical. So that was another reason he was so, I don't want to say obsessed, but really very much wanting to write an opera based on these plays, which as we've seen so far and we're about to see are as dramatic as it gets, really. So I think that reading the plays will provide insight into just why Berg decided to write this opera. All right. Okay. We all have our homework cut out for us. We can watch the opera, and we can read Vedekin's plays, uh, Earth, Spirit, and Pandora's Box. <laughs> yes. And see the movie. Have you seen the movie of Pandora's Box with Louise Brooks? It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie. You can find it on YouTube. Yeah, it's there. That's good to know. Yeah, we could, we could do a lot of Lulu work here. I actually did a lot of Lulu work before we sat down to talk, but there's more to do. There's so much more to do. It, it's very rich material. Well, back in Lulu's dressing room, there's a big commotion because she has had to depart the stage due to a fainting fit. And Lulu is beside herself because it turns out she's spotted Dr. Shun in the audience, but not alone, with his fiancée. And she is offended. And rightly so, because she just assumed that she would have him in her tenderhooks forever. Yeah, or at least not be confronted with this other woman. Yeah, so this really sets her into a fury. It does. And she is 
not going to go back and dance. She says she, she simply can't. And Dr. Shun thinks he wants to live a respectable life with this respectable woman whom he is going to marry, but she throws it in his face. Well, it's been three years. Why haven't you married her? There must be something stopping you. I wonder what that is. Hmm? Yeah, indeed. <laughs> they both know it. They both know it. And as he gets angrier and angrier that she's not showing due thanks to him for all he's done for her, setting her up with two husbands, making sure she has employment in a respectable place. She does acknowledge, I know what you've done for me and what I might have become if you had not been my guardian. And he's beginning to calm down. But then he hears about this prince who wants to marry her and take her to Africa. But wh why not? She says, you, you wanted me in this role so people would see me and someone would fall in love with me and marry me and take me off your hands, but not to Africa, he says. And that's when you realize he really doesn't want what he says he wants. Indeed. And she plays him like a violin. <laughs> she has him wrapped around her little finger and he's doomed. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Although I have to say, I've never had a violinist tell me she plays him like a violin. <laughs> says, you and I both know that you're unable to cut yourself loose from me. She just states it all that clearly. And at this point, Dr. Shun says, I I'm, what am I to do? Just tell me what I should do. Yes, she hands him a pen and dictates a letter for him to break off his engagement. And he does exactly as she says. So she gets what she wants. Again. It's really interesting to see this man who was blustering about yelling at everyone, essentially crumpled up, taking word for word dictation. She dictates the letter out loud. And that's how we end the act. Well, that's the kind of power she has over men. And she, again, she knows it and she utilizes it to the max to get what she wants.
We finished off the first of our three acts in Berg's Lulu. And in the beginning of act two, we come upon a magnificent room where we find Lulu and Dr. Shun and the Countess Geschwitz. This is our first time seeing the Countess Geschwitz. She is a, a woman of great dignity and she's very flirtatious with Lulu, encouraging her to come to her lady artist's ball. And Dr. Shun is He's kind of out of sorts. He's kind of pouting. I like, I don't guess I'm the kind of person who's allowed to go because I'm not a lady. And she's like, yep, that's right. And Lulu, dear, won't you dress in male costume? And Lulu agrees and is flirting with everyone in sight. In fact, we even admire the painting of Lulu, that one from the very first scene of the opera where she's in the Perrault costume. That, that painting, by the way, pops up all over this show. But Lulu comments to the Countess that, that sadly the painter is dead. And just as an aside, but what an aside, Shun comments, yeah, he'd had enough. Well, I said Dr. Shun was out of sorts. He's a little more than out of sorts. He's totally disgusted. And he even describes his life as the plague is here. Yeah, he's deeply disturbed and conflicted. She wants his attention. He, by all rights, actually should give her his attention. but. He says he has to go work. And so, again, he can't resist her, and they end up in a very affectionate kind of situation. So, in the meantime, more admirers start arriving. I mean, I don't know how she keeps up with them all. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's just, you, you can never quite tell what people, I mean, it's very real in the way that you can never quite tell what people truly want or why they're not acting in a way that seems to be lining up with what they say they want, which I suppose is very human. But he says he wants to be with her. He doesn't like what his life has turned into, but he also doesn't see when there's a moment that it's important when his wife says, please stay here. He, he's not able to do that. And you're right. Then we get all these people who he's gone off to work and he doesn't really stay away. And he, he observes some of this, but Countess Geschwitz, who had previously left, comes back in but then when she hears someone else, she hides. Shigolsh, this older man, has come in. So does Rodrigo, the athlete, this burly, strong, macho man carrying the schoolboy. And both are clearly infatuated with Lulu. Lulu enters dressed elegantly because she's got some place to go. And Shigolsh comments to the group, yes, She's the girl that all of us have wanted to marry. And that's when it comes out very clearly that they're confused. No, no, he's not the father. He is, in fact, just another man in Lulu's life. Well, another man who desires her. And, and that line, you know, who has not always wanted to marry her, that's, that's the bottom line of all of this. Yeah. She's irresistible to everybody. And that's how she gets what she wants. Right. She's irresistible even to the, the servant. And this was all played out on stage, not just with the singing, but with the acting, where when someone else comes in, other people hide and everybody's just ogling her. And even Lulu, she's irresistible to herself because she looks at herself in the mirror admiringly and says, oh, when I look at myself in the mirror, I wish I were a man, a man who had married me. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the ultimate ego trip. Yeah. And this whole scene, it. It's not, but it reminds me a little bit of a farce, you know, where you've got people behind different doors popping out, closing behind doors. It, it's a little bit of that. It's like a Beaumarchais play. 
the marriage of Figaro, the barber of Seville, gone gone bad. Yeah, <laughs> gone to gone to the dark side. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, no sunniness here. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> no, absolutely, it's dark. It's so so dark, but it does have that element of these characters appearing one after another. One is hiding, another is appearing. They're all declaring their desires and their intentions, and it makes for great drama. Yeah, it's funny because if there's laughter, and I confess I did, it's nervous laughter because you know it's all very on edge and something bad could happen any moment because we have seen a gun appear at one point. Dr. Shun grabs a gun out of his frustration. And you know what they say. Yes. In the screenwriting world, they say, if you see a gun, that means it's going to be used. (laughs) Yes, it will be. (laughs) But before any of that takes place, there is a poignant moment between Lulu and Alva where she tells Alva, I've never known any man excepting you who would protect me and yet not make me feel debased or, or doesn't cause me shame. And I found that very poignant. It's the brotherly. Well, she is human after all. Yeah. And that's one of her appealing characteristics, of which there are not as many as her negative ones. But there are, I mean, to me, her determination, the fact that she pulled herself, someone helped pull her out out of poverty, but she has managed to make a life for herself and is determined not to go back to what she was. I find that a very admirable characteristic, determination in a woman, and especially in those days when women were not encouraged to express themselves and to reveal who they really were. You have to kind of have to give her that one. Well, her survival instinct is very strong. Yes. And she does survive. And, And another exchange between Alva and Lulu at this point, where Alva is declaring his love for her, calling her mignon little one, which is also what, by the way, his father, Dr. Shun, sometimes calls Lulu. Lulu, very dispassionately, deadpan to the point you don't know if she's saying it because it's true or if it's because she wants him to back off. But she says, it was I. I was the one who poisoned your mother. Mm. And that just drops like a bomb on the stage. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to make a huge difference to Alva and the way he feels about Lulu. Because he's obsessed. Yes. Obsession is a very, very strong thing. And we end this scene with an intense interaction between Dr. Shun and Lulu. Dr. Shun has reached the end of his rope. He cannot do any more. Pretty much the other people have dispersed, pretty much. Some are still in hiding. But he forces his gun into Lulu's hand, but not to do what you might expect, but tells her she must kill herself. Well, that is an interesting moment because, first of all, it's not a good choice on his part. And second of all, it shows that he is ambivalent and he's not as strong as he would like her to think he is or like anybody to think he is. Putting that gun in her hand, that is possibly the most pivotal moment or one of the most pivotal moments in the drama because it shows that he's not the person he wants her to believe he is. Right. And she, of course, what other choice is she going to make? She's not going to kill herself. No, she's a survivor. She didn't come this far just to kill herself. Not at all. Not at all. But it's a shocker. It's a real shocker, that one. At least it was for me the first time. 
yeah, he's he's strong and he's physical, essentially pushing her down and trying to force her to pull the trigger. And in that struggle, she makes a shot in the air and there's there's a jump back and everyone snaps too. And then she finally just shoots him repeatedly, yeah. repeatedly yeah. shoots Dr. Shun dead. And Lulu's comment is, he's the only man I ever loved. Yeah. So that's another one of those dichotomies about her personality that she would kill the one person that she really loved. Like you said, he forces her hand and her hand does what the knee-jerk reaction is, but doesn't change the fact that she is that self-destructive, not only destructive to him, but herself by killing the one man she loves. It just shows you how crazy this character is. I mean, it's so over the top. You're mesmerized by it. At that point, it was going to either be him or her. And she wasn't going to let it be her. She wasn't going to be the one to die, no. she decided. No. And as soon as it's clear that Shun is, is dead, the schoolboy does visibly witness this exchange. And he screams, she's innocent, she's innocent, thinking it was self-defense. The countess emerges and calls Shun the devil. And Lulu sizes up her situation, pledges devotion to Alva at this point, instead of pushing him away, and begs him not to let anyone call the police on her. And Alva's just seen his father be murdered, so Alva's not exactly at that point yet. And here's where we come to the hinge of this opera, this midpoint in the opera. And it's typically the visually there's a silent film that's called for. And it has been shown in, in the productions that I've seen. But what's more important is what goes on musically. The palindrome. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, this is a very complicated thing because to write something like that, both dramatically and musically, you have to be the kind of genius that Berg was. And it's interesting too, in, in the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, when I was first learning about this music. I had an accompanist who was an expert in the music of Bach who told me, whenever you play a piece by J.S. Bach, you have to look for the middle because something revolutionary always happens at the middle. And so it's as if Berg took that concept and used it in this particular opera because it's the midpoint where also in a, in a screenplay, it's the same thing. The midpoint is always a big turning point. For the plot. And so after shooting him, which was the inciting incident of inciting incidents, then Berg puts in this mini drama in a silent film. And in the music, he writes a palindrome, which, which itself has a midpoint. So up to the midpoint and after the midpoint is exactly a mirror of what happened at the beginning. Everything goes backwards from there. And you can hear it in the orchestra because it also there's a piano playing this very dramatic past. I can't even think of a word to describe. It just hits you like a thunderbolt, at least for me, the way it's orchestrated. So the silent film is a palindrome, the music is a palindrome, and the rest of the opera reflects mirror-like what has happened up until that point, so that she reaches a point where she's at the top of her game, and then slowly she begins to descend into total darkness and disaster. And this is all a mirror of her having come from abject poverty 
getting to a point where she's on top of the world, and then again, she's going to be descending into this lowest of the low. So people have analyzed this over and over and over again. And it's endlessly fascinating because you could talk about the permutations of this forever, but that's basically it. The whole opera and her whole life are a palindrome. It starts one way, it builds up to something else, and then it descends back into how it began. So I can't think of any other piece that does that. It's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's remarkable. I think we should listen to this musical palindrome. Absolutely. everyone was a musical palindrome, the midpoint of Alban Berg's opera, Lulu, which is based on the two plays by Wittekind, Earth Spirit and Pandora's Box. And Earth Spirit, that play relates to the part that we've just talked about. This palindrome is that hinge in the middle, the connection point. And now this second half of the opera is the part of the story that is told in Wittekind's play, Pandora's Box. There are symmetries in the opera that Berg 
will insert or emphasize by the way he crafts the opera. But the story of Lulu exists in Vitikin's telling. We will get to these character parallels, but such a complex opera that I'm just going to tell you all, you, you need to go see it. You can find it on YouTube or some streaming services. And thank you, YouTube, for making all kinds of art available to us, <laughs> including Amen this. Amen to that. Yes. Yes. I mean, I've even found a really good one with English subtitles. So please, everyone, enjoy. And obviously, an opera company anywhere within traveling distance is near you and presenting Lulu. Do yourself a favor and go see it. But finish listening to this first. Definitely read about it in Erica's book, Prelude to Murder, and you'll have so much fun. You have so much fun. All right. In the, in the second part of the second act, we have a lot of characters, the schoolboy, Rodrigo, and they're all trying to figure out what to do with themselves as Lulu, by the way, in this film, Lulu's gone to jail. The yeah. police are called. She is convicted. She is imprisoned. A lot of details about how this happened, but the Countess and Lulu contract cholera at the same time. The Countess, out of her devotion and love to Lulu, switches place with Lulu in the prison hospital so that Lulu can escape. And obviously the Countess gets out of there eventually because she's not Lulu and she's not the, the murderess of Dr. Shun as she's referred to often at this point. And Lulu's life is not really good at this point. She's connected with Alva. Alva seems to be her protector. He's beside himself with joy that Lulu will be with him, but Lulu's also in trouble, it seems, with this Rodrigo athlete guy because he thinks she's going to be an acrobat with him. And that's how he's going to make money. Alva has made some money because he entirely sells the media empire, the newspaper of his father, and he gets quite a bit of money there, but he doesn't hang on to it for very long. Ultimately, they escape into Paris, where they're away from the authorities who might be looking for Lulu because of her prison escape. And we do get this gorgeous scene of a, of a beautiful party with all kinds of new characters and people. And, and there's even sort of an echo of what you might make you think of Lulu as this young woman. This, there's a young girl there who men are leering after. It's very uncomfortable. But all of these people that we've met already, plus other people, are swirling around. They're talking about gambling. They're talking about putting their money into these uh, speculative shares for building a railway. Surprise, surprise, it all goes south. Lots of people are impoverished. Some care, some don't. Some have other means, some don't. But Lulu and her crew, which at this point includes Alva and Rodrigo, and to some extent the schoolboy, they're all without money and they're all without means. And Lulu is facing people who want to use her in some fashion or another. Rodrigo wants her to be an, uh, an acrobat and make money that way. There's another fellow who wants to essentially sell her into slavery, prostitution. She finally figures out that that's what he's saying and she rejects that. We also have a few other people, including Rodrigo, who are threatening to make their own money by turning her in and collecting the reward because she is an escaped prisoner. So things are, are tough for Lulu at this point. She's definitely between a rock and a hard place at this point in her life. She's kind of pushed to the wall. Yeah. And there's a 
There's a point where Lulu even deceives some of her good friends, including the Countess, trying to get Rodrigo off of her back. It's, it's a lot for her. But I think we're going to just go ahead and jump to our final scene, uh. that same place where the first rehearsal in your story took place, the first rehearsal of Lulu. So in this final scene, things have declined so far in Lulu's fortunes that she's in a squalid garret, a squalid flat, and she's not even in Paris anymore. Well, they had to escape the police, the French police, and they somehow managed to do that and ended up in London, where she is to meet her fate, her ultimate fate. Right. And it's a, it's a process. And this is where we're going to get to our mirroring image that we talked about right after we played the palindrome. We are going to have the three men who come to visit her. This is her first day, essentially, where she's figured out, and by the way, the hangers on, the men have figured out the only way for her to continue and for them to keep hanging on with her and continuing is, is to sell the only thing she has of value, which is her own body. It makes your skin crawl, or it makes my skin crawl anyway. But we've got Shigolsh, the old man who everyone assumed was her father, wasn't. Alva, who's desperately in love with her, is there. And she brings this professor up to her room, her first John, up to her room. He's not even a speaking character. He's a completely silent character. This is played intentionally by the same person who played Dr. Gull, that professor of medicine, that, that spoken role from the first act, the fellow who died of the heart attack. And she's paid for her services. They are off stage. They return. She's paid. And well, Geschwitz has brought the portrait of Lulu with her from Paris. So again, we get back to the very first scene where she's being painted. This portrait is kind of a movable character in of itself throughout the entire opera. Yes. And the way it's shown on stage is an indication of the kind of permutations of the plot. So in this scene, when Geschwitz shows up, with this, she's brought it with her from Paris, and then it disturbs Lulu, and Alva hangs it on the wall because he thinks that yeah. it will attract clients. So it gets even more complicated. Unbelievable. Yeah, it strikes me as so interesting that we still have these characters in her life, and yet she has gotten to the stage where she feels her only recourse is to sell her own body. And we have a second man join her in her room. This is the man known as the African Prince, played by the same person who played the painter, her second husband in the show. Mm. And this man doesn't behave as honorably as the first client behaved. He says he doesn't pay beforehand. He pays afterwards, and he won't even show her the money. Alva, who's been hiding... I guess as a protector for Lulu, comes out and confronts this African prince. Alva is knocked unconscious and ultimately killed because of the violence with this man that Lulu has brought into her room, this man who doesn't abide by the norms. Which is the ultimate irony because Alva is like the one 
good character in the entire piece, and he gets so unfairly murdered. Yeah. Well, we know that Lulu had three husbands. The other two husbands have been represented first by this professor, then by the African prince, and now the third client. His name is Jack. It uh, can't end well. Yeah, a certain Jack in London going up to this woman's room. And specifically in that neighborhood, which is called Whitechapel, because the real Jack the Ripper was called the Whitechapel killer, murderer. Yeah, that's right. So yes, this is in fact that Jack, Jack the Ripper. And he murdered women in Lulu's line of business. He shows up. He even sees Countess Gesicht there. And the Countess just tries to stay out of the whole thing. And Lulu dismisses it. Oh, she's my sister. Don't worry about it. And Jack decides he doesn't really want to pay the price that she is asking him to pay. But Lulu begs him to stay, to stay with me. And this Jack the Ripper, by the way, is played by the same singer who played Dr. Shun. But Jack argues, I I don't want to stay. You you ask too much. You're brand new at this business. And she confesses that this is her first day on the job. And Jack looks over at the countess and says, "She's, she's not your sister. She loves you. So he clearly is one who can read human faces. And he's figured out what the countess's relationship is with Lulu. And here's where we get to that scene or or similar to the scene that you read from your book, Prelude to Murder, where you talked about this diva, the one who was playing Lulu as she encounters Jack. Yes, it all leads up to that. And the ultimate irony is that the singer who plays Jack the Ripper, being the same singer who played Dr. Shun, she ends up being murdered by the person she herself has murdered. Yeah, you have to stop. You almost need a chalkboard or (laughs) you almost need a whiteboard to draw that one out. (laughs) Yeah, but it's true. And of course, was done on purpose that way. And also, it's another part of the palindrome where it's the mirror of what happened before. So, I mean, how brilliant is that? I mean, it sends shivers up my spine, honestly, because yeah. he he murders Lulu. And that happens, typically it happens off stage, at least the way I've seen it and certainly the way it's described in your story. Yeah. Maybe it has to do with John Crosby. <laughs> She's murdered off stage. Jack the Ripper comes back and thrusts the knife into the Countess as well. Yeah. And he's he's a gleeful fellow. Well, yeah, because he gets off on murdering women. So he gets a two for one in this one, you know, that's the ultimate tie for him. Yeah. Because he's a madman. He's a madman. She ends up, her fate intertwined with this madman. That's the ultimate irony. Right. Which is part of what I mentioned earlier. We've got this look at human nature in this opera with these different characters but you've also got the intersection of real life historical events, the, the revolt in Paris, the, the Jungfrau shares going worthless, and then Jack the Ripper showing up just to tie things up in a bow and end the opera for us. But the Countess gets the last word. That is very interesting, isn't it? For eternity. Yes, yes. She's the one who, who truly, truly loves Lulu. Exactly. And she calls Lulu an angel. Mm-hmm. My angel. Yes. My angel. I'm always near forevermore for eternity. Yeah. That's what gives me the shivers is thinking of that, Mm -hmm. you know, that she really believes that they were meant to be together forever. And that's how it ends. Yeah. 
it's pretty uh pretty high powered stuff and the music is an absolute reflection of that yeah yeah well, I recommend the the opera to everyone. I recommend Prelude to Murder, the second of Erica Miner's Julia Kogan opera mystery series, also Aria for Murder, the first. And uh, Erica, we're looking forward to the third too. <laughs> Any plans for that? Oh yeah, it's uh, it's in the works. It's it has a release date of October twenty twenty four. It's set at the San Francisco Opera, which I have to say. I, again, was very lucky because I know the general director, Matthew Schilvach, and he introduced me to people who took me on tours of the entire opera house. Also, I know the dramaturg at the time, Kip Krana, took me into the depths of this place. It is the creepiest opera house I've ever seen. It's a perfect oh. setting for all these terrible things that are going to happen. And Julia is going to be in a totally different situation as of the end of Prelude to Murder, but you'll have to read it to find out. Yeah. And even my publisher is just chomping at the bit to find out what's going to happen in book three. So it's going to be quite a ride, quite a ride. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm going to mark my calendar for October. And and who knows, maybe you'll come on and talk to us about that book and, and another opera. I, I wouldn't miss it for the world. And uh, I also just wanted to add that if anybody is interested in knowing more details about me, you can go on my website, ericaminer.com, E-R-I-C-A-M-I-N-E-R. And I always put in announcements and events, and there are excerpts from my books and all kinds of fun material that you can avail yourselves of. Excellent. Well, Erica Miner, thank you so much once again for joining us on Opera for Everyone. Well, thank you so much for having me as a guest. It means so much to me. This is such a wonderful show that you do. And I love the fact that people who love opera know that they can come to you to find these wonderful presentations. So I thank you. It was my pleasure.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Opera for Everyone. If you missed any of today's show, you can find this episode and many others on your favorite podcast app under Opera for Everyone. And while you're there, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps others to find us. Opera for Everyone airs every Sunday morning from 9 to 11 Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL Jackson, Wyoming. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera is for everyone. (laughs) 